Great stuff. Thank you, Rich. A lot to fit in this morning, isn't there? <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing a lot, but it's a sign of life. It's, it's fantastic. And great to see all of you guys. Um, I hope everyone here has had a good summer. It kind of feels like it's flown by. Um, personally, on a personal level, I, I really enjoyed a, just a little bit of space from preaching over the summer term where we did our Sit at His Feet series. I took the time to sit at his feet myself. And, um, but listen, I'm, I'm about to make up for that lack of preaching with a vengeance uh, for the next few weeks. So just, just brace yourselves for that. Anyway, September always seems like a good time to uh, share you know, what we feel God is saying to us as a church, share some thoughts on vision, what, what God is saying for us right now as a church and for the, for the year ahead, and just a chance for me to share some of my heart for the church. So that's what I'm going to be doing over the next uh, couple of weeks. And one of the things that God has been saying very, very clearly to us, he's really been impressing this on us in the last few months, uh, which I'm going to focus today, is something we've already heard a lot about today, which is that the church is a family. The church is a family. It's not an organization, even though there are organizations and structures within. It is not an organization. It is not an institution. It is not a business. The church is a family. And that doesn't mean, by the way, being all kind of insular and inward-looking and hugging one another every opportunity, as we'll find out later on this term in our Blessed series. You know, we're a family on a mission, but we are a family. And that is something that God has been saying very clearly to us. And here's the thing. If God is saying something... We better sit up and take notice and do what he says and respond. And maybe there's a balance that needs to be redressed here. We see all through the New Testament language of family to describe the church, to describe God's people. It's everywhere. You can't miss it. You know, it talks about being adopted, language of adoption into, into God's family. We're called, in Ephesians 2, we're called members of God's household. We're part of this family with God as the father and Jesus as our older brother. Um, Paul constantly, the Apostle Paul, through his letters, he constantly refers to people as brothers and sisters. People, fellow believers are his brothers and sisters. You, you can't miss church as family. That biblically speaking, the people who are sitting around you today are your brothers and your sisters. And just like with our biological families, actually you don't get a lot of choice with that. And you might look at some of those people around you and think, yeah, I probably wouldn't have chosen you. But... Um, but you're stuck with us, you know, so that it, you don't get to choose your family, do you? It's chosen for you. And it's the same for us here. Because we belong to Christ, we belong to his family. It's not an optional extra. It's part of the package. It's part of the deal. We are in Christ, so we are in his family. We are inseparably bound together. First of all, across the world, you know, in the wider universal church, we have brothers and sisters in Christ all across, across the world in different denominations uh, churches that look and feel very different to ours, there are brothers and sisters. But also here, in this local part of the body of Christ, here in High Wycombe, here at King's, we are inseparably bound together as family. Now, maybe we all know this intellectually. We kind of, yeah, we, we know what the Bible says. We've read that language. Um, we might be happy to use that terminology. You know, we call this our church family. But m my question really is, is that the reality that is lived out? Does what we do match up with what we say, with what we believe? Or to put it another way, is that what people on the outside looking in would say about us? And let me just caveat everything I'm saying today. Please don't get the impression that I'm standing here saying, we're, you know, we don't have any of this, we're doing a terrible job at this. You know, no, not at all. 
we've already heard from, from Pete about family and that sense of belonging. And we, we, it happens here. So please don't understand that it, things I'm saying is that uh, we, you know, we're in a mess, we're in terrible trouble. No, not at all. Um, but I do feel we, I, I want to bring a challenge to us to go deeper, to go further. And as Pete said earlier, you know, for those who are actually currently on the outside, to step in. I want to bring us a challenge. So just to bring that, that, that caveat there. Because here's the thing, church as family is a lot more than just an intellectual idea that we agree to. It's actually a profound truth. It is really profound, and it should profoundly affect the way that we live our lives and what we prioritize and how we see each other and how we act towards each other. It is really profound. And so my question for you, and my question for all of us here today, is how do you see the church? Really, deep down, how do you see the church? What is your view of the church? And, you know, it might be that some of the language we use, some of the terminology we use isn't actually all that helpful. I'm sure many of you this morning will have said to somebody, we're going to church, meaning coming to this place at a particular time on a Sunday. And we know what we mean, but actually, if that is the extent of your understanding of church, then we've completely missed it. This is a family gathering, and we had a family gathering this morning at 9.30 as well. This is a family gathering, but the family aspect goes way beyond this. It goes a lot wider than a particular location and a particular time. So how do you see the church? What is the church to you? Because how you view something will determine how you engage with it and how you interact with it and what place it has in your life. We live in a consumer culture in this nation, it's, it's unmissable, it's undeniable. We live in a consumer culture, we live in an entertainment culture, and it is really very easy for those attitudes and those mindsets to come into the church. So you can come as a consumer, to come as an attender that expects a certain level of service. And so to see the church not as a family that kind of impacts every aspect of your life, but really to see the church as a service provider that is there to meet your needs and your preferences. So just to illustrate something here, a few months ago, um, I went out for a meal with my family, um, and one of the kids ordered a margarita pizza, okay, which I always maintain is a, is a really wasted opportunity. <laughs> I, I don't understand. But anyway, each to their own. Ordered a margarita pizza, and this pizza came out, and there was barely any cheese. It's like a couple of blobs of cheese, you know, and, and, you know, if you know what a margarita pizza is, you know there are only really three constituents to a margarita pizza. There is dough, there is tomato sauce, and there is cheese. So to get the cheese bit wrong, one in three, that's pretty bad. That's quite an oversight. So we're looking at this pizza, and then you start to think, you know, oh, you know, I don't really want to make a fuss here, but, but then you think, but we paid quite a lot of money for this, and that really isn't up to scratch. That's not really what we expected, so we, we sent it back. Very politely, we sent it back. We did it politely because we didn't want the chef to spit on the, on the, on the, <laughs> on the pizza. Uh, although, to be honest, it was one of the kids, so whatever. Um, why did we do that? Actually, the pizza came out, and it was very nice. They, they did a lovely pizza for us. So, but, but why did we do that? Well, we did that because, actually, in that environment, it is a customer service environment. You know, we are paying for a service, so there is an expectation as to the quality of that service that it would be up to a certain level, and I think that's, that's fair enough. But here's the thing. That does not work in families. 
That does not work in families. If I get home from work and I look at my dinner and I point out <laughs> if there are any deficiencies and I demand that that be corrected, I get a very different response. Um, and rightly so. So that's the consumerism or a customer service kind of attitude or approach. That just doesn't work in family. I could, you could expand that in all sorts of directions. A consumer mindset is more about what the church, whatever you mean by the church, and the number of times I hear people talk about the church hasn't done or the church should, it's like, well, who do you mean? Do you mean me or the elders or the staff team? We are the church. You are the church, okay? But a consumer mindset is really more about what the church can do for me and how the church can meet my needs and my preferences, rather than, well, what is my place in this family that God has added me to in his grace and in his sovereignty? What is my place here? How do I contribute? How do I love my brothers and sisters as well as I possibly can? And I have to tell you, if you do see the church in any way or any form as a service provider, and that can come in very subtle ways. I've presented it in quite stark ways, but it can come in very subtle ways, this. But if you do see the church as a service provider, it will let you down. I can guarantee it. The church, however you understand church, the church will let you down if you come with that mindset. You know, there'll be a week where ah, the worship wasn't really to my taste or my, my preference to preach. I didn't really get it. It wasn't up to scratch. Or, ah, you know, the pastoral care. I was going through this situation. It wasn't really what I hoped for. The leaders were not there for me. During a difficult time, they just weren't there for me. Or maybe it was, I, I didn't really get much out of that small group evening, so I don't think I'll bother going back. Or it might be that person was a bit rude to me. That person didn't say hello to me. They blanked me. So I'm not going there. I'm not coming back to this place. All sorts of things it could be. But here's the thing. If you see the church as a service provider, it will let you down. It just will. And you'll just drift out of whatever little community you, you have. But the church is not a service provider. The church is a family. And I, I love, I read an article uh, recently by someone called Megan Hill, and I love how she puts it here. So let me read this quote. She says, The church is not a man-made society that we can participate in or opt out of according to our own level of comfort. The PTA, the Neighborhood Association, the Library Booster Club don't obligate us to personal sacrifice when things get tough. Family does family does because God's people are our family this is so important <laughs> this bit right because God's people are our family we will hold our own preferences and priorities loosely please hear that okay because we are a diverse family with all sorts of different preferences so it's never going to revolve entirely around your preferences in fact if everything does probably it means we're alienating a whole group of, of other people right you're not going to like everything, and that's okay. We will hold our own preferences and priorities loosely. We will open our hearts and our doors. We will pull up another chair to the dinner table and add another name to our prayer list. We will give them our groceries and our furniture and smiles. We will share their grief and trials and disappointments. We will look for ways to show love. And as a result, we will expect to have less money and less free time than we would have on our own. We will expect to have added sorrow. We will also expect to have great joy. I just love that picture of the church. That's what the church is. 
sacrifice, love, sorrow, and joy. Fantastic picture of the church. And it's good because that's what we see in the New Testament. It's what we see in many cases here, and it's what we see in the New Testament. And we are going to look briefly at a couple of passages that show us something of that uh, in just a minute. But just before we get to that, uh, I I do want to acknowledge again what a challenging and painful time the recent couple of years have been for us as a church family. You know, living through a period of time along with everybody else where we had conditions and regulations imposed on us that were anti-family and anti-community and really anti-human. And we had fear pushed on us relentlessly. And that is challenging. And, you know, we did our best in in those times. We all did our best to have community uh, in whatever way we could, to support one another in whatever way we could. But it was isolating and it was disorientating. And I know some of you are still feeling that very, very much. It's not over for you. You know, some of you are still traumatized by this. You know, you still feel a bit lost and disorientated. You still feel a bit anxious and fearful. And this is where family is so important, to get around people who are finding it difficult, to get around people who are struggling. You know, the people who, for, for, for some very good reasons, are not able to be in these kind of gatherings. Family gets around and surrounds people who are in that kind of need and who are struggling. But it has been a painful time. Let's just acknowledge that. And I have to say as well, in the midst of all of that, um, the, the decision to not relaunch our Hazelmere site, I have to tell you, was probably the most painful and challenging decision I've ever taken. And I know it's been really, really hard for many of you. Actually, there is something in this I just want to apologize. Not, not for the decision, um, because I believe in the decision. I feel peace over that decision. I, I believe we're following God. We're obeying the Holy Spirit and his promptings. I believe it's, it, this, is, this is what God wants, okay? As painful as the decision was. So not the decision, I'm at peace with that, but actually for, we could have done a better job following up on those of you who were part of the Hazelmere site. Uh, I, I, I know, because I know for some of you, it's just been really, really difficult. And it's, it was like a disorientation on top of another, the existing disorientation that we were all feeling. So I just want you to know how much I appreciate you, how much I appreciate you being here, along with everybody else who's come through this difficult time as well, um, and how you've adjusted and adapted. And again, for me, it highlights the importance of family. It's family, that it's about people first, not locations. It's primarily about people. So let's have a look at the Bible. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 2. This will be a very familiar passage for many of us. Um, This is following the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came in a really powerful way, uh, emboldened the disciples, particularly Peter who stood up and preached the gospel and 3,000 people responded to his message. They received new life in Christ. They were baptized. The church was born. Incredible times. And then we have a description of what life looked like in that early church. So from verse 42, it tells us what these believers did. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, again, I said it's very familiar for many of us, but I wonder what stands out to you from that passage. For me, the word that always stands out, because it's repeated, is together. They were together. They met together. They met together, it tells us in there, every day. Every day, in some form or another. It was in larger groups. It was in smaller groups. It was in the temple courts. It was in people's homes. They met together every day. And the impression you get is this was a whole group of people that just loved being together. They couldn't get enough of it. They couldn't get enough of each other. They loved being together. And it it, it seems to me so much so that their regular life came as an interruption to their church fellowship life. Regular life for them was an interruption to what they really wanted to be doing, which was meeting with God's people. Now, I suspect that for most of us in our day, the reverse is true. Because we have kind of reclassified and redefined church as the organized meetings like this one, which are run by a small group of paid people, a small group of professionals um, for the benefit of of everybody else that takes up a limited time slot which is very confined and we can place it in a certain part of our week and that's it. Rather than what we see here in Acts 2 which is that the church is a family that just love being together at every opportunity in whatever form they could. Why is that? Why, why did they have this? Well, I think it's because what we see in Acts 2 is that together is not just something that they did, it is something they were. Together's not just something they did, it's something they were. Verse 44 tells us that they were together and had everything in common. That's not talking about a particular time they met together, because it goes on to talk about that, how they met together every day. They met together like that because they were together. There was a togetherness about them. There was this dynamic of being joined together. It's, it's not something they could make happen, it's something that just was, and they acted out of it. A radical change had taken place in their lives. I don't think the apostles had to tell them to do this, didn't have to instruct them to meet together in this way. They just wanted to because they loved each other and they'd received this new life in Christ and life was this exciting adventure and difficult at the same time, but they'd received new life. They'd received the Holy Spirit. You see what they did when they met together. They they broke bread, they they prayed, they praised. It was all centred around Jesus. They were united with an inseparable bond. There was this commonality between them that went far deeper than any national ties or racial ties or political ties and even than biological ties. What they had here in Acts 2 was this radical, spirit-empowered, joyful togetherness and belonging. Everybody belonged And everybody wanted to be together. But we have received the same new life in Christ. And we have received the same spirit. And we have been given each other as a gift. When I I, I was 17, I became a Christian. Um, I had had some experience of church, Sunday school before that. But had a time when I wasn't doing anything like that. And I became a Christian at 17. And the following week, I turned up at King's. It wasn't in here, this wasn't here yet, this building, it was at a school up the hill, which the school's not there either anymore, that's been knocked down and turned into houses. 
But I turned up to this school not really knowing what to expect because I actually didn't really have much of a concept of how a church could be church, not in a church building, if you see what I mean, because that's how I understood church. So the idea of a church in a school, I didn't really get it. I didn't know what to expect. Anyway, I turned up, and I don't remember who was speaking or what they were speaking on. I don't remember who was leading worship or what songs we sang. I don't remember any of that. All I remember is this strong sense of coming home, just as Pete talked about earlier. I'm home. This is home. And feeling this strong connection with this bunch of people who I'd never met before. And I'm sure some of them were probably a bit weird, you know, and not the kind of people I would have normally hung around with. But I knew I wanted to be with them. I knew I had a connection with these people, not just on a Sunday, but whenever I could. That became the major part of my life. My church family became the most important thing. I wanted to gather with these people. And why wouldn't I? (laughs) Why wouldn't I want to gather with them? If I've had this radical revelation of Jesus, of who Jesus is, that has so transformed my life and how I see the world, I want to be with others who get that. I want to be with people who share that. I want to be with others who also want to worship him. I want to enjoy Jesus with others. And I think this is what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he he said this. He said, "I, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. Because you, know, you praise with others, you praise to others. And there's something about expressing praise with others that completes the enjoyment. It's like if you, if, you look at, if you see something stunningly beautiful, it just takes your breath away. Well, you can enjoy that for its own sake. You can enjoy that moment of beauty on your own and you can praise God for it. But there's part of you that wants to share it with somebody else to kind of complete that enjoyment. Like you see a sunset and it's just this stunning sunset. And you can see that and think, oh, that's amazing. But actually, what I really want to do is have somebody else there with me who I can say to them, look at that, and see the wonder in their face as well because it almost magnifies and reflects the wonder that I'm feeling. And there's something about that that bounces off each other and you can marvel at this thing together and you enjoy it all the more because I'm not just seeing this, I'm seeing it with somebody else. And we both agree, that is stunning. It's a shared experience. There's something so powerful about that. Or, and you know, not all of you will understand this, but when I see a, a, an amazing goal scored while I'm watching football on TV, you know, uh, it depends which team scores it, of course, as to my reaction. But, you know, I can enjoy that goal for what it is. I can, I can appreciate the skill and the, the poetry of that goal. But what I really want to do is text somebody immediately and say, did you see that? Did you see that goal? What a goal that was, because there's something about sharing that beauty with somebody else. But, and even better is when you're in the stadium, and you are joined to thousands of other people who are joined by this mutual appreciation of this thing of beauty, and it's a moment you have together. It completes the enjoyment. I'd far rather be in that environment than just enjoying a goal on my own in my lounge. And I'm sure we all know that worshipping together and praying together is a very different experience to doing those things on our own. Both of them are important, but I love worshiping with other people. It helps me. I love praying with other people. It helps me to pray. I'm not that, much, I'm not that good on my own. So why anybody who has received new life in Christ would want to exclude themselves from the church family, from any opportunity to be with others, whether that's in a large setting or a small setting, why anybody would do that is beyond me. I don't understand 
The idea, and you hear this sometimes, the idea that anyone can be a Christian without the church is just nonsense. It's a lie. There is no category for that in the New Testament. But actually, more subtly, there's that mindset that says, look, I'll just turn up when it's convenient to me. But really, it's a low priority. No. No, that is a consumer mindset. And, And please hear this. I'm not talking about, I'm not trying to encourage us in just legalistic and dutiful attendance, or I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on to try and boost our numbers on a Sunday. It's not about that. It's not about Sundays. It's not about numbers. It's about belonging. It's about commitment. It's about being joined together. It's about being united in Christ. That's what it's about. Whether you're here on a Sunday or you're not here on a Sunday, are you part of the family? That is my question. It's about being united in Christ. Don't be a consumer Don't just turn up when it's convenient to you. There's sacrifice involved in this. There's sacrifice involved in family. And I know that there are all sorts of reasons, and some of them are very good reasons, for falling out of fellowship. Some of them are not such good reasons. You know, it might be, oh, well, you know, life is just busy. Yeah, I know. Everyone's life is busy. I get it. But what are you prioritizing because we will prioritize that which is really, truly important to us. So what are you prioritizing? Or it might be, I got hurt in the church. That would be a common story, whether it's here or in other churches. I got hurt. Somebody, somebody offended me. Yeah, I, I know. I get that. Because that happens in families. Because we're a bunch of flawed people. And so we can offend people. And we can also perceive offense where there isn't any. That's what happens in families. And it's because it is family. It's because there is a calling on us as followers of Jesus to be in family that we look for ways through that. It's why we're told it's good to overlook an offense. It's why there's guidance in the Bible about how to handle offense and dispute in the church because God knows it will happen. It's why we're told to bear with one another and to forgive one another and to confess our sins to one another and a whole multitude of other one another's. And ultimately, of course, we are to love one another. We are to love one another, and that is very difficult to do at a distance. It's radical. It's challenging. In Acts 2, we we see, though, what what we see is the impact of this way of life. We see how the believers live, what that leads on to. It says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, we want to see that, don't we? We want to see that. We want to see people added to our number daily because they are being saved. People saw this radical community of love. They liked what they saw. They wanted to be part of it. They wanted whatever these people had, whatever had provoked this radical change in their lives. So their togetherness and their love for one another was one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that they had. But then that is exactly what Jesus said would happen. It's what Jesus said, John 13, 34 and 35 Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. You notice it's not a suggestion, it is a command. He's not saying, look, it would be good, guys, if you could just find your way to getting on together. No, 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 it's a command, love one another, not an option. Love one another. 
And Jesus is saying, when you do that, when you love one another in that way, like I have loved you, which is a pretty tall order, by the way, to love as Jesus has loved us, if you think about what that means, (laughs) sacrificial love. But he's saying people will notice. The world will notice. It's how they will know that you belong to me. So this isn't just about being family for the sake of it, for the sake of being family. It's a huge part of our witness to the world. Do people notice our love for one another? And actually, I think Jesus raises the bar even more in John 15 in terms of our love for one another. So here's what he says in verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Do you hear what he said? If you keep my commands, then you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. You know, we often use the phrase abiding, abiding in Christ, abiding in his love, staying close to him, in close relationship with him, keeping our eyes fixed on him. And that's what the Sit at His Feet series was really all about. And which is why it's not a case of, right, we finished that series, move on to the next thing. No, we take that in to our whole lives. We are to continue sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking in him, staying close to him, abiding in him. But Jesus clearly makes this link between keeping his commands and being able to do that, being able to remain in his love, being able to abide in him. He goes on to say, my command is this. You know, when Jesus repeats things, he wants us to hear it. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now we know that we don't do things to earn Jesus' love. You could kind of read it like that. That's not what he's saying. We don't do things. We can't earn Jesus' love. We act out of his love. We act out of receiving his love. And so what Jesus is saying a couple of things here, I think. One we are comfortable with, and the other maybe we find a bit more challenging. The first is that, look, you can only love one another in this way by receiving my love and staying in my love. Okay, I think, yeah, we get that, because I know I don't find it always very easy to love people. But when I realize how much Jesus loves me, it helps me to be able to love others. Like that makes sense to us. We remain in Jesus' love to be able to love one another in the way he has loved us. But then you flip it around, which Jesus does, and it seems that he's also saying that actually that remaining in his love, that connection with him, depends on our connection with one another. So he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And what does he command? He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. So (laughs) you can't say... I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It doesn't wash with him. He loves his church. You can't even say, you know, I, I, I love Jesus, but I'm just indifferent about the church. I, I, you know, I can take it or leave it. No, no. I suspect Jesus would say, you don't love me. If you don't love my people, you don't love my church, if you are not prepared to love them sacrificially, you don't love me. This is important stuff. It is so important. Our love for one another is so important in so many ways. And by the way, let me just say again, I have seen and experienced myself in my own life and seen in the lives of others love expressed in this church family over the years in just the most extraordinary ways. Just incredible generosity, incredible sacrifice, incredible love 
Um, there's, a, there's a particular prayer need that we're going to be bringing to you at the end of the meeting today that is another example of, of just seeing the family in action. It's just stunning. It's just phenomenal. I have seen it so many times, just generosity and support given to people going through tough times. But I'm also acutely aware of things I hear about and times I hear about where that hasn't happened. And that, really, that is really grievous. Where something, is, for whatever reason, and there can be lots of reasons, but something's just fallen short in our love for one another. Our love for one another is so important. It's more important than anything else because we, we could have the best worship in the world. We could have the best speakers. We could have the best kids' work, the best youth work, the best small groups. And by the way, I think all those things are pretty good here. But none of it would matter. None of it matters. None of it comes to anything if we don't love one another. It comes to nothing. And we're to pursue that love one another we have to be intentional about loving one another because actually this is what Jesus died for he died for this he died for his people it's why it says in, in the passage in Acts 2 that I read before it's why it starts with saying that they were devoted to fellowship they were devoted to it devotion is active you can't be passively devoted to something you have to go after it you have to be intentional and we can think well there are too many people to be devoted in that way I don't know everybody you know there's a whole bunch of people I don't know 350 people who were in the 930 meeting I don't know them and I don't know most of the people in here so how can I be devoted to them well listen there were 3,000 which very quickly we read turned into 5,000 in the book of Acts so clearly loving one another and being devoted to fellowship is not dependent on knowing everyone because it was that's impossible they couldn't have known everyone with that number of people so it's not about that. You know, I don't know everybody here. There are some of you who I do know really well, and I've known you for years and years. And there are others who I know a bit, and I'm just getting to know. There are some who I will have spoken to you before, and I'm just really hoping that next time I speak to you, I remember your name. And, and I don't know everybody's name. I don't. I'd love to, but I can't, and I don't. The question really is, is there somebody who does know your name? And not just your name, but who knows you. People who are in your life. People who, you know, they're in the nitty gritty of your life. People who will see you at your worst and they will still love you regardless. Because that is family. That's what happens in family. And if you're not in that position, if you're not in that kind of relationship, what are you doing about it? Are you waiting for the church to come to you? Or are you also going to be devoted to fellowship and get stuck in, get into a small group, get to know people, build relationship, be involved in other people's lives because you will then find that they're involved in your life as well. That's how it works. We are to be devoted to one another. We are to love one another. And just one really extraordinary thing we see in, in the book of Acts is that it tells us that no one among them was in need. No one among them. Just think of that. What an extraordinary witness to the world. And it tells us why in Acts 4. It says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. But they shared everything they had. Wow, that's a challenge. But no one among them was in need. Are you aware of people in need in the church? And I know need is a relative thing. And need shows itself in all sorts of different ways. It can be financial, sure, but lots of other ways as well. Are you aware of people in need in the church? And if you are, what are you doing about it? Step in and help. 
Don't assume that the office, the, the elders, are, are going to even be aware of the situation. Or even that they're the best people to help in that situation. You're the one closest to the situation, so you step in and help in whatever way you can. And there is always people you can ask for help as well. But we've got to do that. We are the church. We are the family of God. So we all have to be intentional about making sure no one among us is in need and present this wonderful picture of the family of God to the world. This is challenging stuff. And it might seem too challenging. It might think, you might think this is a bit of a tall order, really. You know, I, is it really possible? In our day, in our society, is this really possible to love one another like this? Well, let me finish with this. This is what Jesus prayed for us for his church in John 17. So Jesus said this, he's praying to his father, he said, my prayer is not for them alone, as in the disciples who are with him then, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, and that's us. He's praying for us. And he says, I pray that all of them may be one father, just as you and I are one, just as you are in me and I am in you. That is staggering, that's a staggering thing to say that we would be one in the same way as Jesus and the Father are one. (laughs) May they also be in us so that the world may believe, here it is again, so that the world may see, the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one, again here it is, as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a theme here with Jesus, isn't there? Love one another, that's how the world will know. But he's praying here that we would be one in the same way as the Father and Son are one. That is perfect oneness. That is perfect unity. And that is what will lead the world to see and believe. You know, that, is what will, that will lead to revival if we can do this, if we can get this. And we again can think, well, how is that even possible? I know how unloving I can be. I know how sometimes I I don't want to be near anybody because I'm quite an introvert. I know what this world is like and, and the things that are opposed to family and community. How is this even possible? Well, it is possible because Jesus said it. We've got to believe that. Jesus prayed this for us. He prayed it and Jesus equips us through the Holy Spirit to go after it, to be intentional, to pursue it, to supernaturally love one another and display the glory of God to the world. So... How do you see the church? How do you see the church? How you see something will determine how you engage with it, how you interact with it. How do you see the church? Is it as an organization, as a service provider, or as a family? If you are in Christ, you have been adopted into the best family. It is the best. It really is the best. With a perfect father and a perfect older brother and a whole bunch of very imperfect and slightly strange brothers and sisters who I love dearly. I love you dearly and we are to love one another dearly. So let us be characterized and known for our sacrificial love for one another in the power of the Holy Spirit in a divided and isolated and hostile and lonely world. Let us be the contrast. Let us be the light. Let us be one and let us be together. Let us be united just as Jesus prayed that we would be so that we display the glory of God to the world and offer the hope that we have found in Jesus. Amen? Amen. 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 I wonder if we could stand together. I just want to pray.
Let's pray, church. Father, help us. We are aware of our shortcomings. We're aware of our flaws. We're aware of our lack of love. But we rejoice in being part of this family. Thank you, Lord, that you've added us together. You've joined us together. In perfect unity is what it will be. But we ask for your help. Holy Spirit, come and fill us and equip us and empower us to live the way you call us to live to go against the world and all the patterns and the, 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 the rhythms of the world, to, to be part of the rhythms of life that you call us into. And one of those is the rhythm of family, to be part of family, to love one another sacrificially in hidden ways and invisible ways. Lord, help us. Help us. Join us together all the more. Draw us closer together in love to, to you and to one another, that the world may see, the world may look and say, what is going on here? What is this about? I cannot fathom it. How do you get this group of people together in love like this? We want to see the world saved. We want to see people saved, Lord. And so help us to get this right. Help us to love one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.